Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news and our opinions about them. We've got four hosts this week, so that means at least 11 opinions. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh9. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet weekly since 1994. Leo. I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer out at askleo.com. Kevin. I'm Kevin Savitz, the chief printables maker at freeprintable.net. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of macmost.com. You're not chief of anything. (laughs) No, I'm not chief. I'm chief of that, (laughs) where I post new Mac, iPhone, iPad tutorials. I also make mobile games, uh, and you can find those at clevermedia.com. And I read a lot of... Uh, online news, which is, <laughs> I guess we Don't all do. we all that's where the yeah the show comes from. And dominating kind of the news, the tech news today that everybody wanted to talk about was this leaked memo from the White House that actually had to do with technology. It, uh, it talked about a possible nationalized five G network, uh, and this got everybody very excited. Um, so five G is basically you know we had four G. You know, somewhat fast uh, mobile networks, and then they went to LTE, which was, you know, marketed sometimes as 5G. But 5G is supposed to be like the real deal, like way faster than what we have now. Um, they'd have to build the, build it into the towers across the country, and they'd have to build it into our phones. And once we had it there, years from now, everybody will have much much faster internet on their phones um, and potentially in their homes as well it would be a viable way to get internet in your home. But right now, kind of a lot of people have to make do with that for their homes uh, because they don't like their cable provider or whatever, but it's not as fast as a land landline cable or telephone. So 5g is a big deal. And AT&T Verizon, a few other companies have talked about rolling out the first towers, the first cities to get 5g later this year. But this memo came out and it's an old memo. So it was like leaked today, but, it had gone out a while, uh, you know, been written a while ago, saying that uh, they were considering doing what the government did in the 50s with the highway system and basically saying, we're going to take over 5G and we're going to lay out a national network in three years and cover the whole United States with 5G wireless internet. Um, and the idea was to keep competitive, you know, uh, you know, it would be a big deal to have the U.S. take the lead on 5G and have the fastest wireless internet. And the other idea was to prevent espionage because they were afraid that if the companies, you know, the mobile companies do it, uh, the chips would be produced in other countries like China and potentially uh, backdoors and exploits could be built into those chips so that the Chinese, say, could listen in on our, on our data in the United States. Um, of course, the thing is that if the U.S. government were to, fi- were to build 5G networks, um, you wonder whether or not the U.S. government would be listening on our... No, I don't wonder that at all. Yeah, you yeah. don't wonder, you're sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, the, the memo came out and, they, and the reports are that, oh, we never were doing that seriously. Um, and the FCC actually made a you know, uh, comment saying, we don't approve of that. We wouldn't want to do that. And a lot of the big mobile companies said, no, don't don't do that. We're, we're already most of the way there. We've developed all this stuff and we're on our way and, and the U S government shouldn't do that. So it's kind of a non-story as in it's not going to happen, but I think in the end, even though it would be horrible if it happened, this story coming out today probably pushed all of the major mobile networks in the U S to make sure they're, they're moving forward with 5g, maybe a little more aggressively because uh, you know it always scares them when they think that they might lose out. Uh, well, I think they're doing that already because you know if AT and T's doing it, then Verizon's got to do it, and then Sprint's got to do it. You know they're going to have to do it anyway to compete. So I don't really see why they need to be spurred because I think they're already doing it. Good point. I think they probably feel threatened. Although to be fair, if the government steps in to try to do it themselves they lose all the incentive. The, the companies lose all the incentive to, uh, to carry on. Um, and of course, <clears throat> we know that, you know, 
a government project like this is probably going to take a little bit longer than they might initially estimate. Yeah, yeah, the doing it on time. Well, even uh, experts even said that it was ambitious to say that they could do it within three years um, as a government project like that, which is probably true. I mean, there are a lot of areas where we do have municipal, uh, you know, internet connections, not the same as a, a mobile network like this, but uh, but a lot of times they do happen in areas where the cable company or the phone company has been slacking and the, the, the people have kind of taken it into their own hands that, well, if the local telephone company in our state is not going to care about the internet in our town, we'll, you know, do it with the government. I so, feel that pain. It seems, it seems that there's one thing to trust your local government, your city, your, your municipality to create an internet network for your town. It's a whole nother thing to trust the federal government to create the network and get it to your town and do all that right. It's two different levels of trust. I agree. Yeah, your local government typically doesn't have a Bureau of Investigation or a security agency, mm -hmm. you know, like the NSA or something. Um, typically, yeah. it's, you know, just uh, uh, they're not doing that kind of level of, of thing. So, and also, of course, they a lot of times they have local oversight and ombudsman and all that stuff that are that would love to catch the current government in, in abusing their power so they can get elected <laughs> next time to take their place. So yeah, local government's probably a little different. Gary, you were talking about um, one of the reasons behind this potential you know, move was to not use chips that were made overseas, like in China. Mm -hmm. The implication is then these chips are gonna be made over here. Yeah, exactly. Are there any chips being made over here? Yeah. Well, actually, doesn't Texas Instruments still make uh, chips that are in the? Uh, they make processors, and Intel makes processors too that are used. Are they actually fabricated here? I know they're designed here, but are they actually fabricated That's, here? I, I thought last, and it's been a few years since I've looked, but I thought some of the key chips for the iPhone were actually produced in Texas. Interesting. And that was the idea that Texas, they were producing some of those chips in Texas and the glass was in West Virginia and there were several other parts in the U.S. and it was being assembled in China and there were, there were battery parts and other things being made in Japan. So the idea that, you know, when people will say, oh, the iPhone's made in China, it's like, well, actually, it's made worldwide, including the United States, but the ascent final assemblies in China. I'll have to go and see if that's still true of the, the chips. I already uh, just looked it up, and yeah. uh, Wikipedia actually has a list of fabs. And just glancing at it, Intel, for instance, has fabs in Hillsborough, Oregon, Chandler, mm -hmm. Arizona. Uh, Microchip has them in Gresham, Oregon. Uh, Rio Rancho, New Mexico for Intel. Of course, other places around the world like Costa Rica, uh, Ireland and, and all that, yep. but Russia. Uh, so I'm seeing quite a few in the U.S. So it's at least a possibility. That's that that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt before, but I was just like, I I think there's one just a few miles away from me in in, uh, in Hillsboro. But you know, I I think there's a fab there. But you know, they might be churning churning out five chips a week. You know, I don't know how how busy the, the U.S. fabs are compared to what they can do in China. Yeah, I mean the thing about you know, fabricating uh, chips is that it, it, isn't it a lot less human intensive, right? It's a lot more machine of production, whereas assembly of products like gadgets, it, there's a lot more people involved. Yeah, in the process. I forget to mute my phone. Hmm. So, so, yeah. so of so, course, with all these chips then being made in the United States for the infrastructure, we wouldn't have to worry about all the chips that are on the phones connecting to this infrastructure. Of course not. <laughs> Or yeah. anybody, you know, say sitting up a listening post somewhere in the U.S. and getting an account on this system and uh, seeing what they can hear if they tap into the network. Thinking of this overall, I mean, I can I can think of many many reasons this this would be a bad idea, and there's a few good ones. Like, you know, theoretically everything would be covered equally, so that very rural areas would finally have you know fast broadband, uh, but. I don't think I don't know if anybody the government would do any better job at that than AT and T would. 
So I want to jump in with another little sidebar here because in 2012, the Middle Class Tax Relief and Job Creation Act actually created something called the First Responder Network Authority, which is known as FirstNet. And what this is, is a plan to provide interoperability for all the first responders, police, fire, EMS, all that, so that they can talk to each other better. And that whole thing is based on voice over LTE. So they've already allocated $7 billion to seed this this program and dedicated 20 megahertz of radio spectrum for it, I believe in the 700 megahertz band, so that first responders can use this system to talk to each other and part of it was based on, you know, you're looking at all this land mobile radio stuff that, you know, the two-way radios you see on Adam 12 and all that. Those are being really crunched down. Uh, the FCC mandated not too long ago that they all, quote, get narrow-banded, which means they have to use half the bandwidth that they did before. It used to be 25 kilohertz channel spacing. And that was required to become 12 and a half kilohertz. And they're talking about having it again. And since I work as a first responder in a rural area, it has really impacted us because by cutting our bandwidth in half, it basically cut our power in half. We can hardly even talk to each other on our system as it is. We're in a mountainous area and it has really cut down on our coverage. So I've, you know, I'm, nominally in charge of the communication system here and i've increased the power of our repeater which kind of thwarts the whole idea in the first place but you know if they have it again we're going to be in trouble but on the other hand we've got this first net thing coming through and part of the driver on that was you know you're looking at the two-way radios that we've been using They're, they cost about fifteen hundred dollars for a portable two-way radio and then you look at you know gosh Look at my cell phone that I paid 400 bucks for that has built-in mapping, GPS, um, all these things that we can do, texting, sending video. Why can't we have radios based on this that are you know, kind of ruggedized so, so that we can drop them once in a while and things like that and maybe only pay four to 600 bucks for these radios instead of these $1,500 portable radios that we are buying? And that's basically what FirstNet is doing. They're using phone-based systems with a push to talk. So it's kind of like the old Nextel phones where you can just create a group. And when somebody hits the button on there, it's like a walkie-talkie. So, Randy, is this the, um, the project that also allowed certain phone numbers, certain mobile phone numbers to get prioritized as first responders so that when the system becomes overloaded in an in a true you know an area wide emergency, they get to make their calls and everybody else has to wait. Well, part of this is that it's its own separate network and it's going to be um, created. I mean, AT and T got the contract to put this system together, and part of the idea is that if you start putting these cell towers for first responders in a lot of areas. What happens when they're underutilized? And one of the attractants for AT&T was they could sell or they could, they could use some of that unused bandwidth to carry civilian phone calls. And if the first responder traffic builds up, then, yeah, they're going to kick those civilians off. So what you're asking about is on current commercial regular cell phone towers. Correct. Could those be kicked off? And I think the answer is yes. Um, I was offered actually one of these cards where I could, because I'm the comm guy in our county, where I could actually get priority for my own cell phone. And I actually didn't follow that up. And I don't know that any of our local uh, sheriff units or anything like that are doing that either. But by being offered that, it kind of implies that that system is actually in place. Yeah, it's it's something that I ran into. Um, you know that I volunteer for one of the emergency management uh, organizations out right. here. 
and a couple of the uh, folks in our organization actually have that. They they've got the you know the magic blessing that uh, when the big one hits. Uh, their phones will keep on working even when the rest of us won't be able to make a push a call through. Yeah. It, it's an interesting idea, but the bottom line is that, you know, they're, they're already building a LTE network for first responders, but the government itself isn't even doing that. They're contracting it all out to AT&T. So why would they want to, you know, do yet another one by themselves. It just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, and and, uh, and there are, remember there are other projects afoot as well as you know, like uh, SpaceX has you know been talking about building out a low altitude satellite network that doesn't just cover the United States; it covers the whole world. Um, that could provide uh, internet access. You know, uh, the, the good news is I think you know this thing aside is is we're not at a standstill with the future of internet access. There are other things on the horizon. It's not like, uh, I don't think 20 years from now, we're still going to be looking at, well, it's your telephone company or, or your cable modem. You know, it's, there'll be, there'll be other new things um, out there. It would probably be like a mobile 5G or 6G, whatever network. There'll be probably be a satellite network of some sort, maybe competing satellite networks. Um, and and they'll have to compete with for price and quality with competing like they're firing lasers at each other in space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it might come to that. <laughs> when exactly did Skynet become self-aware? <laughs> yeah, I think we've already passed the original date, but yeah. that's okay. They changed that timeline by putting out the, uh, the the reboot movies. So, yeah, it gets really confusing. Ah, time travel. Um, but if if there was to be competition for uh you know different uh different uh internet access they probably would buy twitter followers to uh to try to influence people's buying decisions right Kevin? no <laughs> uh, technically uh, i guess theoretically yes yeah, trying <clears throat> to make a segue there so. yeah it was super smooth um <laughs> Super interesting article in the New York Times uh, this weekend about uh, Twitter followers being for sale, which I think we all sort of knew was happening, but they took a deep dive into the uh, one particular company that creates bots and, and uh, fake Twitter accounts and then sells attention. Uh, you can People can buy followers, you can buy retweets, um, and then they published uh, big old lists of famous people and, and uh, who have done this, uh, uh, athletes and politicians and uh, uh, other uh, people in the entertainment industry who have uh, purchased followers. Um, and uh, I don't know, I just found the whole thing fascinating. Um, the company, they were focusing on one particular company, although I bet it's not the only one. Uh, basically, uh, you can buy followers for about a penny apiece from a company called Devumi, uh, which uh, their Twitter account has been shut down since. How many uh, followers did they have? I don't know. But uh, you could buy followers for a penny apiece. Uh, uh, ch- cheaper if uh, you buy in bulk. And Basically, one of the things I found interesting was there seems to be kind of two levels of bot followers of of these fake people that that will fake Twitter accounts that will follow you. One is they take uh, pictures uh, and and uh, bios and things from from real accounts with, and then they create a new account with the same name, a similar picture, maybe recompressed or or color shifted or something, uh, and and the same bio. And then, so basically, there is a clone you out there who looks like you and has the same bio as you, but then you know is, is tweeting about uh, celebrities or porn or or in for languages you don't even speak, and and who knows. Um, and the second level of of bot is just like might be called you know JGB one eight four nine three, and it's got no personality, and it's got an egg or whatever generic. Uh, logo for the for the user and it's just kind of doesn't look as as uh as real so yeah 
thoughts? Um, I mean, I think we've all seen them just around. I mean, I, once in a while I get followed by some picture of a human who doesn't, you know, looks uh, just way too hot to be following me and clearly isn't interested <laughs> in old computers. Uh, and you know, I always block them and send them on their way. But what do you guys think? Well, you know, Facebook has had this thing where they try to get you to buy followers from way, way back. So why is this a big controversy? I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't like the idea of fake followers, but, you know, when, when you're doing that on Facebook, are you sure those are real people anyway? I wasn't sh- sure they were real when, when uh, I was, went, to, went to high school with them, so I'm still not concerned. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, so, it's, uh, technically, it's against Twitter's terms of service. So if you just want to go on that level, but what's the big deal? I don't know. Don't you want to? F- I, I think in the in the realm of of celebrity, when you when you look at someone and say, "Hey, this person has five hundred thousand followers. Wow, they must be someone important," or people think he or she is super interesting. That's a kind of I think devalues the whole platform by, by uh, adding a I don't know, false level of, of celebrity. And of course there's a whole nother level of things when you get into politics and, you know, um, if you had bots retweeting your crazy political views. Um, and I think there's been certainly a lot of that, you know, talked yeah, about I'm, since, since last time. I'm less concerned about, you know, the, you know, buying, followers to increase your follower account. I'm not sure anybody even looks at that anymore past a certain point. I'm more concerned about people, bots, who are basically, as you say, retweeting the crazy stuff out on the internet or sharing, um, you know, intentionally misleading stories. Um, I think that's a a significantly bigger problem than... um, you know, then, oh boy, I've got, you know, half of my followers are fake. Well, if they're not doing anything, I don't care. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that the Senate Intelligence Committee is investigating this. And it's like, really, that's worth Senate attention? I'm hoping it's based on the fake um, news thing, fake news, misinformation side of things. Because if it's just counts, you're right. It's a total waste of effort, time, and money. But yeah, who cares? Uh, I do think that both on Twitter and on Facebook, uh, primarily, the um, the fake accounts that have been uh, pushing misinformation have indeed had a negative effect. And not just in the United States. We're hearing stories about that happening over in Europe as well, specifically with Brexit and a couple of other initiatives, um, you know, across the pond. So. That's something that I think is definitely a problem that needs to be solved. Um, but like I said, counts, who cares? Well, I think you can't, you can't separate them because the idea is the counts give validity to you know, whatever is, is broadcast. So you know, if you create some sort of account and you're going to post a fake article uh, and you've got no followers, well, you know, who cares? But if you... I, you know, added a thousand followers to that account um, and let it sit there for a while. You know, they do a, a thing where, you know, they create an account, you know, two years ago, you know, and they add fake followers to it. And then a few real followers come in from that. And, you know, they post a bunch of normal news stories, you know, with a political slant to it. And then they activate that account and say, ah, now it's time for it to post this fake story. And that's why it was created, you know, all that time ago. I think the numbers do. I think we should care about those numbers. I think that's why you know, nobody cares about an account that just was just created and has zero followers and post something fake. But if something appears to have a thousand followers and appears to have been around for a while, then people pay more attention to it. But then how would you feel, Gary, if that fake account was called Gary Rosenswag and, and people yeah. had been following it thinking they were following you and then all of a sudden they think you were some sort of wackadoo? Well, yeah, which is exactly why I applied to be a verified uh, account on uh, Twitter. But of course, they they wouldn't have me. So, um, you know, that was like my argument right there. Um, yeah, so that's a that's a problem. And uh, yeah, so I think the accounts. I, I think Twitter's got a big problem with these these fake accounts 
but it's a tough one to solve because I heard somebody on the news today propose that Twitter start verifying all accounts, you know, start the process of doing that. But some of the best Twitter accounts are like, you know, like the Mars uh, rover, or there'll be companies that will have their official uh, accounts where you can, you know, ask for customer support. And there's people will create accounts for all sorts of things, whether it's for humor, you know, your dog or your cat, or for something really sure. you know, serious. Right. But you as know, long like, as you can say, hey, this, this silly bot was created by Kevin, yeah. you know, as long as there's some accountability. That would be the way to do it, yeah. Um, I think if they just charged 50 cents to create a Twitter account, it wouldn't solve the problem, but it would sure cut back on it. Yeah, I, I think you could, I think if you, maybe you could have a way to list, have an account where you could just listen uh, for free mm. um, because that's another thing people do. I, I know Twitter has this list thing, this list product that they created and you create a list of people you want, but a lot of people still will create specific Twitter accounts, just follow a bunch of people um, and then use that account to simply look at that feed of celebrities say, or, you know, sports people or whoever it is. Um, so like a listening account is free, um, but an account where you actually want to post something you know that I mean they'll never do it, but because you know Twitter so, for some reason seems resist resistant for that kind of thing. Like I would love to be able to you know that verified thing. I love to pay fifty bucks and have mm -hmm. my account verified, and that would be fine with me. You know, and um, be worth it on, on my end. Mm -hmm. And I don't think fifty something like fifty dollars or twenty five dollars or whatever is going to be a barrier for most people who want to do verified accounts for one reason or another. Well, I want you to know that we have no false followers on our Twitter feed. <laughs> We've got 13 real people and four of them are us. Wow. Wow. That's uh, yeah, no, we're definitely, obviously we're not buying <laughs> any followers there. You're also <laughs> assuming that we are not fake. <laughs> well, I am talking with you. Mm. I would sound a lot better. My voice would be a lot better if I was fake. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should move on. Uh, Leo, tell me about uh, all the, the ads I see in my Googles. So it's interesting. Google, as we know, paints an interesting picture. It has a, a lot of data about who you are and what you're interested in. Those of us with Android phones see this a lot um, in there's a, a feed where it shows you what it thinks are interesting news items for you. And as it turns out, the information behind that is accessible to you. Um, I'm going to spell out this URL. It'll be, of course, in the show notes, show notes but I want to spell it out because it actually has a non-obvious spelling. It's adsettings.google.com. So it's adsettings.google.com. I actually had to verify that that wasn't a typo in our own notes. Um, the short answer is if you go, go to that page, you will find Google's concept of the topics that you're interested in. Unfortunately, uh, and somewhat surprisingly to me, since I'm fairly open when it comes to Google, they don't really scare me that much. So I let them see pretty much everything I have and am. Um, they got some things about me seriously wrong. <laughs> uh, they had uh, two things come to, you know, were just like really big red flags for me. One is Google thinks I'm interested in country music. Now, with all due respect to everybody who loves country music, good on you. I'm not one of you. Um, I love a whole bunch of other kinds of music. That just isn't it. Google thought it was. And the other one that just shocked the heck out of me is parenting. I, <laughs> I, I have no children. Um, I'm really uncomfortable around small children. Parenting is nowhere in my wheelhouse, uh, not even near it. So it's one of those things where if you're seeing ads, if you're seeing stories that are being recommended by Google and they seem way off base to you, particularly if they are things that uh, are so off base that you just don't want to see them and would rather see something more re relevant, um, go visit that, that link, adsettings.google.com, and see what they think you like. And chances are there are some things in there you would rather not see or be exposed to. So I hadn't looked at this before uh, we 
we're, we're preparing for the, for the show. Uh, Google thinks I'm interested in like 60 things, which I thought, okay, uh, that seems like a lot, uh, including I wrote down a couple of things that I just couldn't care less about, just like you in, in parenting, uh, sports, flooring, HVAC and climate control, and uh, fast food. So Google doesn't understand me as well as I thought. It did. <laughs> well, so for so for thought me, we got I, each other, man. <laughs> so for me, I, I had you know football there too, which and to be fair, it had baseball, which is correct, and football, which is I- incorrect for me, and uh, it had career planning, which made me try to think of the last time I made a resume. It was 1994. That was the last time I actually had a resume. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely been an entrepreneur since then, and have would not that whole subject of career planning would not be something at all. And just when I thought, well, Google doesn't know me at all, I noticed that they think I'm interested in fonts. And then I thought, fonts? Oh, well, yeah, actually. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love am, fonts. I am a font geek. Google Google does know a little something about me. Uh, That's yeah. funny. I, just, I was thinking, ooh, I want fonts. How do I add that? And sure enough, you can add topics. So. <laughs> you can. What's, I did try adding a topic of my own. Of course, you know me. What do you think I added? Tried to add? Cor- corgis? Corgis, absolutely. <laughs> no, you have to select from a predefined uh, list of topics. And corgis so, isn't on that list, but fonts is? Exactly. Yes. Dogs are, I think, or pets, one or the other, you know, so generic um, category. I just tried to add Atari and it wouldn't, looks like, nope, sorry. Yeah. So, (laughs) so I use that Google app a lot. I mean, that's what I just kind of scroll through to see what is of interest. And it was always showing me football stories and strangely enough, mixed martial arts which I've never had any interest in, never have gone to an MMA website, nothing. And I kept clicking. I mean, in that Google app, you can you can click the you know the little three dot menu and say stop showing me stories on this topic. And I said stop showing me football stuff. You know, thirty or forty times. And when I went into this page, it still showed that I wanted to know about football. And I just don't get it. I mean, if it's if they're so good at listening to signals and seeing what you're interested in. Why don't they respond when you say no, 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 no? Maybe, so the real Google, question knows, is, maybe Google knows you so well that it knows like what's going to happen and you're going to get into football. And Leo, you're, you got hardly um, someone, likely. Some, you've got someone on the way. You're going to be a parent, <laughs> Leo. Google knows. Just wait six months and we'll talk about it. So Randy, I'm assuming that you went into the interface and removed Google from your, from your interests. I'm sorry, you removed football from your interests. Yes. Once I found this page... You know, I went through and said, oh, no wonder, and I did that. You but can also you see the topics you don't like. There's another tab in there, so you can click on that, and I've got 28 in there. Most um, of them are football. Well, there, there is football in there now, but boating, I mean, they apparently were showing me boating before. Dance, oh, yeah, I'm really into dance. And folk music and motorsports, and it's, just, it's insane, some of the things they showed me. So, but after you made that change... Has it changed what shows up on your phone? It seems to be settling down now. I'm not seeing as much football and things like that because it, it's only been a few days since I um, okay. updated my preferences, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm just looking through my current feed and it's showing me all sorts of stuff that I'm truly interested in, you know, like the Spectre patch or things happening with my Mac, credit freezes, WordPress, Bitcoin, uh, Tesla, you know, et cetera, Amazon. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff that's in the news, a lot of stuff that's techie, but it's a lot of, it's all stuff that's on target for me. And I have to say that I can't really say that I've ever seen that feed be particularly off target. Yeah, there's the occasional stuff, but certainly not to the degree of showing me parenting stuff. So I was kind of surprised to see this in this, um, this list of interests. And uh, of course, you know, you know, first thing I did was remove that. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm sure the listeners will like to know that they can perhaps, and I I think they use this for ad preferences too. I I think they're they're getting these cues from your email, from the sites you visit, from the YouTube videos you watch. Because one thing I noticed on mine was TV comedies because I was researching some uh, 
old comedy stuff on YouTube. It's like, that's the only place I can think of that they would have gotten that. Oh yeah. Anybody that's doing online research for work or for whatever into topics that aren't necessarily a personal preference, but are just part of their work. Right. Um, yeah. They're, they're throwing the, they've got to be throwing the algorithm off like crazy. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So speaking of amazing, Randy, I hear you have something to say about Grumpy Cat. Yeah, Grumpy Cat was so grumpy, she filed a lawsuit. Well, probably her owners did, or her handlers, and won that lawsuit. It was about copyright. They had gotten into a uh, uh, a deal with a coffee maker, and were, the coffee maker was allowed to put Grumpy Cat's face on certain coffees. Well, according to the lawsuit, they were using it on more varieties of coffee than they had paid for and T-shirts and things like that. So Grumpy Cat's handlers sued them for copyright infringement and won $710,000. And the reason this caught my attention is it just kind of shows the value of online viral things and the risk of violating some of that really valuable content. I don't think they're going to go after people who makes a meme of Grumpy Cat, but they could if they really wanted to. So I, I think it it just points out the some of the perils of being online. If you have a blog, guess what? You're a publisher. If you have an email newsletter, you're a publisher. And publishers have certain rights and responsibilities and liabilities that they can be sued because you violated somebody else's rights. I just thought it was an interesting point. I agree that cop, you know, Grumpy Cat's not going to go out and, uh, and by the way, I'm using Grumpy Cat in the you know, uh, sense that referring to his, his handlers as well. But I'm sure that Grumpy Cat's not going to go out and sue random Joe blogger who creates a nifty meme and starts posting it somewhere. You're right. Exactly. But, but if they then start, you know, take that meme or that image or whatever and start putting it on, you know, cafe press mugs or t-shirts or whatever and start making money, as soon as there's money involved, that's when lawsuits happen. That's when the lawyers get involved. That's when there's a reason to actually, um, you know, uh, an incentive to enforce. Though, the though I want you to be careful with that because just because you don't make money does not mean you're not oh, infringing I copyright. I understand that. And, and somebody who is very protective about their copyrighted material, say Disney, they're famous for this. Um, absolutely. They, they will absolutely work on enforcing their copyright uh, no matter what you're doing, whether you're making money or not. But for a smaller player, and in this space, 750,000 is kind of small, small number. Um, Grumpy Cat is a small player, but they're big enough to actually have some impact, but they're going to be very picky and choosy about exactly who they're going to throw lawyers at. And interesting you brought up Disney because Disney, just to give you an example of how far it can go, Disney has gone after childcare operators who painted Disney characters on the wall inside the child care facility. Right. That's not really making money on it, but it is infringing on Disney's copyrights and they can and have gone after people who do that. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the story is the amount too, is looking at you know the amount of money. So the, the value of Grumpy Cat uh, is more than that $700,000. Uh, I mean, absolutely. That was just a so we know that whatever the value of Grumpy Cat is, it's more than that because that was just that one lawsuit, that one company producing stuff. Um, so you can estimate that in multiple millions of dollars, uh, you know, when you have a, uh, you know, a, a, given that Grumpy Cat is kind of an outlier because not only did uh, did she, you know, become internet famous, but was able to maintain that internet fame for for quite a while, and I guess still today somewhat um where a lot of internet famous stuff is you know like 30 days and that's it um so right. it's it's yeah building value in a kind of a you know a internet age of you know, celebrity um, 
it, it could be worth a lot. A lot of YouTube stars now know that their little empires are worth millions. And I actually got a kind of a chuckle out of the amount of the award. They sued for copyright infringement and for breach of contract because they did have a contract with this coffee maker that they could you know use it on certain things. And they charged breach of contract because they were using it on other things that were outside the contract. So the award came down to $710,000 for the breach of con uh, for the um, copyright infringement and $1 for the breach of contract. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if, if there was any breakdown on punitive versus actual damages. Good question. Um, oh, and by the way, the contract, which was uh, made in, 2013 was $150,000. So they got a lot more than what the contract was initially worth, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. And that does kind of indicate that there's some statutory or um, extra damages in there, but this article that I'm looking at does not break it down besides that. Yep. Hmm. So we, we all need to run out and find our own grumpy cat and get internet famous. Yeah. Well, my get out of hell free cards are a good example. And I have various Christian organizations thinking that's a great idea, and they're putting out their own cards, even though mine are not only copyrighted, but trademarked. So I own the ability to put a get-out-of-hell-free motif into a card, and that is being infringed. And I'm actually um, talking with my lawyer about do we need to do something about this and how strongly do we need to react. Yeah, it's interesting, especially when it comes to trademark. Um, you almost have to do something whether you want to or not. Because right. if, you don't, if you don't enforce your trademark, um, it can be interpreted as you're uh, no longer wanting to keep it. Yeah, the legal term is it dilutes the trademark. Right. Huh. So. so onward, let's go to um, HomePod, Gary. I, I don't know much about this. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, the news is, you know, since our, our last show, Apple announced that the HomePod was going on sale and it, the online orders were Friday morning. So, you know, did the thing where you try to get in there and get one of those early orders and they come out on February 9th. So the HomePod is a, a, a speaker set or, you know, just a, it's a device basically that Apple's coming out with that will play music and have Siri in it. Um, it's, I think it's significant because it's the first new product, completely new product Apple's come out with since the Apple watch. So, you know, Apple only comes out with a completely new line of products every few years. The last one was the Apple watch. And, um, this is a whole new thing for them. Now it, it's kind of competing with, uh, the Amazon echo, um, in that, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You know, you, you hook it up in your room and then suddenly you can talk to, uh, in this case, it would be Siri uh, rather than Alexa. And, um, and then you could do all the things that you could do normally with Siri on your phone or your Mac. Um, but Apple's take on this is to make it a extremely high quality speaker. So it'll fill the room with music and play like higher quality music than just about anything else you could get in that category for $350. So it's a significant, you know, $50 for an Echo Dot and $350 for a uh, HomePod. Um, so far, the early reviews from journalists that have gotten their hands on one, since it's not out yet, we don't have any real reviews on it, um, is that the early reviews are that the music quality is in fact excellent. Uh, and Apple's has a history of doing that. You know, the, the original iPod, um, people forget was a significant, you know, step up in music quality over the existing MP3 players. There were tons of MP3 players out when the iPod came out and Apple said, well, ours is going to sound better. And it did. So the idea is they said, well, there are a lot of speaker sets out there that you can get. Ours is going to sound better. Um, and we'll see. And it also has a little screen on the top of some sort. It'd be interesting to see what that is. Also, it has lots of microphones built in. There's a lot of hardware in this device and some of it may not even be enabled or, you know, can do anything here on February 9th. It may be stuff that they add to the software later on. Um, 
also, you know, people complaining and saying, well, $350 when there's a $50 version that Amazon has for uh, the Echo. Uh, but, you know, Apple's kind of mode has been, well, here's the high quality one first, you know, and maybe later on they will say, well, if you just want Siri and a little device, we'll come out with a $99 one that doesn't have the big speaker in it or something. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, Apple, it's a whole new category for Apple. and. Uh, all the fanboys like me will be getting one, and all the non-fanboys will be talking about how horribly overpriced it is. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, we'll we'll know more in in less than two weeks now. Well, I will say as a as an Amazon fanboy, <laughs> um, I have one of those you know fifty dollar Echo Dots sitting on my desk, and I would actually put the sound quality up against whatever Apple's coming out with, not because the dot is that great. Because it's got a speaker out, um, I've got it. I've got it hooked up into a high quality stereo system, and uh, you know that's that's what matters a lot. So I think people that really care about sound already have options. It's not to say it's going to be a bad product or you know that it's overpriced or whatever. I think it'll be fine, but I think it's not necessarily as clear cut a win in the audio quality uh, category as as they might think. How much so that how much does that uh, sound system cost that is hooked up to your Echo Dot. It was free. I already had it. Oh, okay. Well, but <laughs> I mean, that, how much, I mean, what's its value? You stole it from the Amazon store last week. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, but my point is that a lot of people, especially people who care about sound quality, already have something. I mean, this is just one of a couple of different stereo systems I have at my helm where if I wanted to plug in an Amazon Echo, um, I could. I have that option right now, today, uh, for an additional $50. And it's just, you know, the incremental cost of getting good quality sound in an Amazon Echo is just not that high. And, the you know, the original Amazon Echo that I have, it sounds awfully good. I mean, it's probably not as good as the uh, Google Home big one or the Apple one that's coming out. But for just listening to casual music, it is plenty. Yes. And, and, the, and again, as you say, I can plug it into my stereo if I want. Actually, one of the biggest complaints about the first Amazon Echo, because we have one of those too, is that it did not have a speaker out. Um, it's one of the things they fixed first. The only option you had to listen on that one was the built-in speaker. And it wasn't even stereo, right? It was a mono speaker. It was a single source speaker. So... It's um, it's something that Amazon has certainly improved on, but uh, like I said, there are there are options. I'm less concerned with sound quality. I want to know what what features the gadget can do. You know, what what Siri, Alexa, whatever type stuff can it do? And I just uh, read an article in uh, the Tidbits newsletter, which uh, is a Macintosh newsletter that I've been reading since just the dawn of time, uh, and uh, it said. Uh, article by Josh Centers, it said, if you're expecting the HomePod to blow away the smarts of the Echo or the Home, prepare to be disappointed. From what we know about the HomePod, it will not be able to access third-party services without tapping into a connected iPhone or iPad via Siri kit, unlike the Echo, which lets you install new skills. And uh, it also said that while the Echo offers multi-room audio, synchronized audio between different rooms, HomePod is a doesn't do that now and they might be able to add it in the future except airplay 2 which was promised june of last year still hasn't come out so right yeah airplay 2 is going to be a big i mean they're getting closer on that and i i think i heard that it's not going to be part of the homepod for launch but will follow soon or something um but uh you could already kind of do you know, have multiple speakers going on with AirPlay, but Air, AirPlay 2 is supposed to be the real deal um, where you can have, you know, your whole house just humming with the same music and it's all in sync and everything. Um, it is it is going to be, you know, the functionality, a lot of the functionality comes down to what ecosystem you're in. So, you know, Alexa has a ton of really cool functionality that you can expand with skills. As a developer, I could create my own skill, you know, and put it up just for me if I wanted to you know, get some weird functionality in there. But, the, uh, but the thing is that I, without, you know, kind of uh, doing some workarounds, I really can't add a reminder to 
my remind you know, my iCloud reminders with Alexa or added you know an event to my uh, you know iCloud calendar because it's the Amazon system I'm on and if I was using Google's Home Assistant I could easily add stuff to that but I couldn't really easily add it to to iCloud so you know having access to be able to suddenly uh, use the you know, use my voice to add a reminder and, and add a calendar event and, and messaging, you know, people, a lot of people like myself use Siri for listening to and sending text messages rather than typing. Um, having the ability to do that in a room without a computer or, you know, bringing out my phone um, is, go, is going to be pretty good functionality. It's nothing new, nothing that you can't do with the other systems, but you can't do it if you're using the Apple ecosystem and you have an Alexa, you know, an Alexa device. I, I don't mean to argue, but I yeah. have somehow managed to set it up so that I can tell my Alexa to add things to my calendar and it gets added to my, well, I guess I use my Google calendar. You're, you're right, if you're using the Google, Google system. Yeah, right. so, yeah. 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 And, then, so if, and then that's synced to my phone somehow. So Exactly. Yeah, yeah so if you, if you, and that's still the way to do it. If you're like doing a mixed um, you know, system people that have a Mac and an Android phone, yeah. or they have a PC and an iPhone or whatever. I mean, using Google is the kind of uh, glue way to do it. They can do it. Yeah, yeah. You could you could just say, well, I'm not going to use iCloud's calendar. I'm going to use Google's calendar, and all you know, your Mac or your iPhone work fine with that. Um, if you're cross platform, that's the way to the way to go. iCloud only works if you're completely in the Apple. So let me ask a question of you guys, because I, I, and I think we talked about this a few weeks ago as well. We've got these devices. We all have them. We're all, you know, leading edge tech enthusiasts. What do you actually use them for? Well, reminders a lot. <laughs> Say that again, Randy. I, I use mine for reminders a lot, uh, you know, just to, to take me out of my work and go put the laundry in the dryer or, um, go get lunch or whatever. Um, just if I know that I want to work for half an hour and then be interrupted, I just pop it into there because it's easier to voice it than it is to type it into my phone. Mm -hmm. Gary, you were saying something at the same time. Well, I mean, I, I'll find out how I go do with the home pod, but like when I'm walking or biking, uh, instead of pulling my phone out, I like to ask Siri to tell me what that incoming message was and then I'll respond and I'll, I'll do the same while driving too. I'll just completely use my voice to hear what an incoming message is and things. Although now I don't hear incoming messages because that's the, the thing that it, it uh, automatically responds when you're driving, which is a nice feature. But the, um, but yeah, so, so just be, being a voice conduit, you know, voice interface to things that I would otherwise be typing or, or tapping. Kevin? We, use our, we use ours in the, uh, the, the kitchen a lot for timers, uh, for music, and uh, we've completely adopted it for shopping lists. Alexa put grapes on the shopping list, and then whoever happens to be at the store can just look at their phone to have, have the, the shopping list all the time. Interesting. Interesting. So I'm in the same boat where I'm using it primarily as a, as a, a kitchen timer. Uh, very frequently, actually. That's like the number one use uh, by far. Number two is that we live in a uh, an area where the local news radio station that we prefer to listen to, uh, we actually don't receive very well. So we listen to it streaming over over the echo instead. And all the the you know words I said earlier about the uh, the quality of the audio that comes you know comes through, and I've got it hooked up to my stereo. I typically don't use it to listen to music. Hmm. I probably will start listening. My goal is to start listening to music with it when right. I get the HomePod. That will be the test and see if I stick with it. It's really interesting to page through the, um, the number of skills that are available for uh, the Amazon Echo. Uh, the vast majority of them seem cute, but ultimately not particularly useful. Um, the one that caught my eye was, you know, I can ask Alexa for a corgi fact. <laughs> and it will tell me something about the breed. So Amazon clearly cares more about corgis than Google does. Mm -hmm. Amazon knows where it's butter. Bread is buttered. <laughs> that too. Are you That's sure you don't run the corgi fact uh, tool? 
I'm absolutely positive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mm. All right. Well, Leo, you mentioned, I think it was you that mentioned Spectre. And I know there's been some updates on that, and I'm not sure what they are. Well, it's crazy. Um, So Spectre is one of those things. It's the gift that keeps on giving, apparently. Uh, Many companies, including Microsoft, were very quick to push out updates that attempted to mitigate the vulnerability that the uh, the Spectre, um, along with Meltdown uh, vulnerabilities, presented. However, what we learned, uh, I think just yesterday, maybe the day before, is that uh, Intel has admitted that the uh, microcode changes that they recommended be part of that fix for a specific variant of Spectre is causing some machines to spontaneously reboot. Enough so that Microsoft looked into it and they actually were able to attach it to some data loss scenarios, which regardless of what you think of Microsoft, they take scenarios involving data loss extremely seriously. So Intel has suggested maybe hold off on pushing those updates. Microsoft has gone a little further and has now issued an update, an out-of-band update that actually reverts the Spectre update of a couple of weeks ago, if your machine happens to have it. Uh, they, Because there don't appear to be any cases of Spectre yet being um, uh, exploited in the wild, they're taking the position that right now, while we wait for a better fix, a fix that is less likely to reboot some machines, uh, it's better to have nothing than to have that. And in fact, um, uh, Dell has also suggested, because part of the fix, part of, part of what's going on with, with Spectre and Meltdown is that the fix is like all over the place. Your browser needs to be updated because it can be exploited in Java. Your operating system needs to be updated because, of course, the operating system can do anything. But the actual BIOS or UEFI that's on your system also needs to be updated. Except that Dell said, well, hold on a minute. Before you go running out to update your BIOS, let's wait a little bit also so that we can get an updated, better patch for Spectre that doesn't run the risk of rebooting your machine. So all this is really interesting going on in the background, but my question is, do I need to do anything or do I need to not do something or just wait? It depends on what you normally do. If you are a person who, as I so often recommend, takes automatic updates and backs up regularly, keep doing that. Just keep doing that because the automatic update, for example, the, um, uh, the Microsoft update, it's going to happen automatically without you needing to do a thing. If you are someone who wants to micromanage what your system does, well, if you took that update a couple of weeks ago and your machine is working just fine, my guess is you don't really need to do anything. It probably would have rebooted spontaneously by now. I'm actually in that situation. I actually took the BIOS update for my Dell laptop and it's been running like a champ. So I'm not apparently you know, affected by that patch, or I should say the processor on my specific machine or the specific processor on my machine is not negatively impacted by this fix. On the other hand, you know, if you took this patch, if you took a BIOS update or if after a Windows update, your machine suddenly started uh, spontaneously rebooting, then yeah, revert from the backup, revert to the backup that I hope you took before applying patches or you took regularly and then hold off, wait a while before going further with, um, with any of these updates until you basically get the all clear from either Intel or Microsoft or Dell or your computer manufacturer um, that says, okay, we, we've got it right this time. We really mean it. This time for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as, as we, we know from the discussion we had a couple of weeks ago about Spectre and Meltdown, not only are these specific vulnerabilities incredibly complex, but they expose, and the, you know, the, the nature of these fixes exposes just how incredibly complex our CPUs have become. Um, it's amazing the things that they do uh, in order to do things as quickly as possible. Uh, we take them for granted, but they are amazing uh, feats of engineering 
And it's one of those cases where I've, I've sometimes said it's amazing that they work at all. Uh, they, they do some incredible things, and it's not terribly surprising that something might come along um, and, you know, there might be a crack in the armor. But yeah, that's, that's the idea. If, if you're letting things happen automatically, you should be okay. Uh, if your machine's not spontaneously rebooting, you're probably okay. But if you are someone who, uh, who tends to uh, you know, herd or shepherd these kinds of changes along, you'll want to pay attention and make sure you're only, uh, only installing the things that have been given the all, the all clear. So that, I think, uh, probably puts a wrap on this week, you guys. What do you think? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yep. Guys, well, thanks for listening, everybody. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh9. You can sign up on the website for email updates that will let you know when there's a new episode posted, or you could just use any podcast app. We're also on Twitter at the teh podcast and on Facebook at slash the TEH podcast. We'll see you again. We'll see you here again next Tuesday. I'll I'll Alexa you next Tuesday. (laughs) Bye. Bye, everyone.